Welcome to the Jay Kim Show. This is your host, Jay Kim. I am an investor, author, and fitness entrepreneur. And for the first time in Asia, I sit down with the world's most brilliant minds in business, investing, and entrepreneurship. You'll learn all the secrets, strategies, and formulas to becoming a successful entrepreneur directly from the masters. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week with the goal of providing actionable insight to you, the listener, with every single episode. And now, on to the show. We have an awesome guest on the show today. His name's James Giancotti, and he is the CEO of a startup called Odd Up. Audup is a research platform that rates startups the very same way that equity research analysts rate and recommend a publicly listed company's shares. Startup investing has traditionally been a very closed and private circle. And as an outsider, it's very difficult to get true and accurate information on a startup when you want to invest in it. So Audup aims to provide that sort of transparency by covering startups with a buy, hold, and sell recommendation, very much like a public company would have. So Audup just announced the close of their $6 million Series A round earlier this week, which is huge news. It's been going viral on the news wires here in Asia. So it goes without saying that James has had a very busy week and he's very generous with his time. We're lucky to have him on the show today. James is a good friend and he's certainly one of Hong Kong's rising stars. You know, he's a very down to earth and modest guy. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this episode. We go into a lot of detail about his company and, uh, and specifically, we talk about how to get coverage on this platform. So if you are a startup founder, then this episode is for you. Okay, now on to the show. Hi, James. We're very excited to have you on. And it's been a very busy week for you, but a very exciting week. So once again, we appreciate the time uh, for squeezing us in. But for our audience listening in, uh, perhaps you can introduce yourself. Who is James Giancotti and what do you do for a living? <laughs> Great. Uh, and thank you. And uh, thank you so much for being here, um, firstly. Secondly, I'm James Giancotti. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Odup, and we rate startups. Very concise, very uh, to the point. And for the audience listening in, James is being modest because they just had a huge announcement. They just closed their Series A round, which we will talk about in depth later on. But before we do that, I want to take a little bit of a step back because um, I think you have a very interesting and relatable backstory. Mm -hmm. So if you can take a little bit of time and just walk us through your background, you know, you weren't originally from Hong Kong, but you moved up here. Where, where did you start your career? You've had multiple, you've been an investor, you've been an entrepreneur, you've been an employee. Uh, just walk us through sort of your, your, your life, basically, leading up to this point. Uh, well, that's a, <laughs> it's a long story. I'll try and condense it. But uh, <laughs> I'm a law graduate. So I studied law at, uh, in Melbourne, um, in Australia. And then after I did that, I actually didn't practice law, which is quite interesting. Most people, I actually have a law degree, but I haven't actually practiced it. I went straight into consulting. I worked with people like Deloitte and Capgemini. And uh, after I did consulting and sort of business management, sort of understanding leading bigger projects, I went into uh, investment banking, actually, what brought me into Hong Kong. So a lot of people ask, what brought you to Hong Kong? And I always say it was love. I love money. And, you know, I joined an investment bank and um, 
started at JP Morgan. And after I started at JP Morgan was there, we had the, the financial crisis that we needed to have worked and started investing on the side in some startups and did relatively good out of it. And it was a passion of mine. I always was an entrepreneur. My family's been entrepreneurs for years. Then after that, I, I set up my own company in the background. And then I joined Goldman Sachs for several years. But the itch of being an entrepreneur was always there. And after I left Goldman Sachs, became an investor uh, with my uh, co-founder, Jackie, um, in big colors. We had some exits very quickly. And we actually built Odup as a product of what we were doing as a VC. And that's when Odup sort of sort of found maturity. We were investing, we were putting research reports together, and people said, this is really good, I'd buy it. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's a nice thing. And then all of a sudden, the more and more people told us this, and then Odup was born. Um, and we started in Hong Kong all those years ago. So it's been a very, very long but sort of interesting journey. Changed my uh, my career multiple times, and I tend to get bored quite easily if I if I'm not excited. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. I I, I love your story because I'm, it's so relatable to me. You know, we both spent I spent a number of years uh, on the sell side, um, basically uh, chasing money. The love of money as well is what brought me to Hong Kong, and I think that it, it's very it's refreshing and it's uh, it's inspirational when like society and culture has has tends to romanticize entrepreneurship and startups and and you see you know movies like the Social Network or the the, the Zuckerberg movie, mm. um, and you think that you know startup founders are are all millennials and they're all in their 20s but the, the the reality of the situation is a lot of successful entrepreneurs they don't get there until they've had a number of years of experience in multiple different industries mm -hmm. under their belt and then use that experience to then start their real or you know a, a real startup that that they're successful in so i love your story again thank you for sharing that and you were solving a sort of uh, personal pain point or professional pain point, if you will, at your firm, looking at startups and how to rate them. So let's dissect that a little bit. You know, you have a research background as well. For those of us listening in that don't really know how, you know, say, uh, public list listed equity research works um, and how you replicated that model to the private equity, maybe you can walk us through that. Sure. Well, um, you know, I spent a fair bit of time at Goldman Sachs putting together, you know, uh, work particularly on covering companies like Baidu and Tencent and so forth. And, mm -hmm. you know, the research is only as good as the analyst that gives it. But one of the things that, particularly with public research, is, is that you need to understand the companies, you need to understand the founders, you need to have information that can help move a stock price. And that's the same thing with startups. You know, a lot of investors will say, oh, you know, I've seen a hot announcement on a hot company, that must be a good company. That's not correct. Most startups can move with the wind in, in an hour. And so way I, where we've put together Odup is very much like the, like the traditional public market research where people are getting a buy, hold, sell, a current rating, a future valuation, a current valuation, and potentially price movements in, in the market, but ultimately how other things affect the startup. And one of the things that uh, we made sure that we did for for Odup was to make sure that we were covering the things that people do not cover. And so I, I'll give you a good example. I'll use a Hong Kong example. WeLab is probably the best example. I know we've covered them since you know, a baby boy at $1 million, and now they're a billion-dollar company. But yeah. part of their success is, of course, Simon and the team. 
But a lot of their success has to do with fintech being hot, being in China, being in the right location. So when we put a, a report together, and this is very similar to what public markets do, we're looking at not just the founder. Well, let's look at the investors who are pulling the strings. Let's look at the, the team that they've got. Let's look at the location they're in. Let's look at the industry as well that they're in. Are they hot? Are people putting money into this industry? And so this is where we look at it's not just the startup. It's everything that surrounds the startup that gets investors and public people excited about it. So that's really the way we've put it together. It's very similar to what would happen at the, the, the public markets. But the difference, I guess, with public markets versus private markets is public markets are moving every second. You know, as soon as the, 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 the trading bell rings, guess what? You can tr- buy and sell um, and get that returns straight away. Whereas in startups, you know, we haven't got that mechanism yet. It's probably going to come in the next 10 years, but the mechanism to buy and sell so quickly. So people are looking for the long run, high risk, high returns. I think that the, the way you approach it with sort of doing it as a sector, uh, if you will, giving the larger landscape of the startup is, is actually a, it's a smart way of doing it. And having done angel investing in the past myself, I'm guilty of also just being too granular and just focusing on the company, on the, the metrics like, OK, is the founder, how good is the founder? How good is the team? How good are my co-investors? You know, looking at the data to, on too much of a granular level and forgetting about, oh, what's the actual environment of the sector that they're trying to compete in? And I think that that's uh, one area where, you know, I mean, startup investing is, is obviously very difficult and it's a very closed and private circle. So as an outsider, it's difficult to get information on startups. And that is essentially what Audup is trying to uh, provide that transparency for, right? Yeah. And I, I, we want to go a step ahead. When we talk about startups, a lot of people, we do get some friction on, you know, your, how do you know my startup? We're not just covering startups. One of the things that has frustrated me as an investor is actually investors taking ownership for their, their mistakes. And so mm. I've invested in some great companies. I've invested in some crap ones. And so I can, and a lot of investors do, I can blow my trumpet of how wonderful my my exits have been. But let's be real, I've invested in some bad companies as well. And so mm-hmm. you know, we need to look at a full total picture. You know, I, I one of the things I love about Jason Calacanis, who's a, a probably a well-known angel investor in Silicon Valley, is, you know, he'll talk about Thumbtack and, and Uber saying he got lucky, but all the other ones that went bad you know, they went bad. And so he says that, you know, it's the total portfolio that counts. And this is the key thing we're investing. But besides startups, we look at the investors, we also look at the locations. So if we had a dollar, you know, just a dollar for every time someone wants to be the next Silicon Valley, instead of raising $6 million, and I'll get to that probably later, we would have raised maybe four, four and a half billion dollars. And so <laughs> everyone in the world wants to be the next Silicon Valley. Will they? Will they not? Well, probably not. Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley. There could be different versions of that in other places. But we don't just look at these things. We look at startups, locations, industries, um, investors, and now we're about to launch accelerators. So, you know, a lot of people now, there's accelerators everywhere. People need to understand not just from the startup, but actually let's look the other way around. Are the investors worth getting money from? And so we're looking at a total picture of the ecosystem, not just on the startups that, that people are so interested in. Right. Okay. So let's talk uh, some details. So how many startups do you have in your system and rated at this moment okay so rated versus information so a lot of our um 
a lot of our data is, is a lot of information and we do not cover a lot of startups. And it's the same thing with public markets. You know, there is thousands of companies on the stock market, but really 100, 120 get actually rated because they're the ones that get the most volume. And we take that approach in most of the markets that we're in. Um, so let's look at Hong Kong, for an example. You know, we cover about 150 companies that we have a buy, hold, sell and expectation and so forth. But there's also about 2000 other startups that we actually cover, have data on, have um, metrics around that as well. We just don't have a concrete conclusion on what you should do. And some investors, have, actually a lot of investors are very, very happy just to have the data and they'll make that decision, which is what we, we encourage as well. And so total uh, globally, as in we've covered Asia everywhere from Beijing down to Melbourne, and we're of course going to grow further into Asia with that. But we're covering currently about 21, 22,000 startups in the platform and about wow. two and a half thousand are actually got ratings on them. Got you. And you talk about location being a key component when you when you when you look at startups and rate them so where do you have uh, your underground network of analysts globally Sure. So I'll, I'll go from north to south. And then um, if you like, I can talk about where we're going. So uh, okay. we're in everywhere from Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, Hong Kong, and then most of Southeast Asia. So anywhere from Manila, Ho Chi Minh City, uh, Kuala Lumpur, Bangkok, Singapore, and as well as covering now Sydney and Melbourne. And uh, we're about to go into India. So um, Mumbai, Delhi, Bangalore has been the first three cities. We'll cover Tokyo. We'll cover uh, Seoul this year. That's what we'll be aiming to cover more. Uh, we want a total Asia experience for our investors. Awesome. So here, okay, so now let's dig in a little bit deeper. Okay, so basically, uh, if it works the same way as uh, public equities, which I'm probably much more familiar with, having a startup rated or getting a rating from Audup is quite a validation uh, metric for you. And, you know, you have proven, you know, you mentioned WeLab in the past, and you have proven sort of track record of, of companies that you've rated that have gone on to be very, very successful. I don't know what the numbers are exactly, but you have a very high hit rate, so to speak. And, and that, that just is, is virtuous for the, the, the startup as well. You know, it'll help them grow, it'll help them get publicity, it'll help them fundraise, access to a larger market of, of funding. So uh, that's all good uh, when it's said and done. But basically, how does a startup get on your radar? Typically, you know, we had a rule and we stick by this rule. And usually the startup needs to have raised some money. We need to benchmark them against something. If your startup has not, and, and, and I'll use another good example as an example, one of the rare cases, but most of the startups have to have raised something, seed, even 50,000 US dollars, something. So we can say, okay, they've received money to do A, B, and C. We can benchmark them against something. I, a company who's raised series B versus seed, how much they've raised versus the others and where they were at different stages. It's very hard for a startup to get rated if they haven't got any publicity, any measure of traction, or actually any form of visibility. Right. There's only a very few companies that sort of have done that successfully. The only one that I guess is a billion dollar company is Invata, who are based in Melbourne. Mm. They do PST toots, they do um, theme forest, huge graphic yep. design market like 99designs you know with 99designs they've raised money whereas Invada they're a family company so a company needs to actually have some sort of 
investment so that investors who are using our platform can go, okay, which investor gave the money? Was it private money? Was it an accelerator? They need to have some sort of metric so that then they can start identify it with other companies. So that's usually the first thing is, you know, at least announce even to us, even if it's not sort of tech crunch or tech in Asia worthy, at least make it, at least make uh, us aware of that you've, you've raised some money. Mm -hmm. And and then, so let's say uh, one does pop up in your radar and they look interesting, they've done a round. Uh, so then what's the next step? You deploy one of your research analysts to do a bit of work. How long does that process take to do a report and then to finally initiate, so to speak, on the company? So so typically, I love the word initiate. I haven't heard much of that since, uh, <laughs> since I was in public markets. Initiate, I guess, the, uh, the um uh, for the uh, the listeners out there, is you know typically what we do when we're about to cover a, a company, and then it's uh, it then becomes part of our research platform. You know, until then, it's still talked about. Um, initiate's a great word. Um, so I'll use yeah. the for, forgive like, my uh, my my bias. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Uh, so so typically, uh, once we get some data, our research team. Let's assume that's uh, let's. Ho Chi Minh City, let's use Vietnam, for instance. Um, mm -hmm. Our analysts on the ground will actually want to speak to the uh, the startup as much as they can. And typically, startups love it. You know, there's a lot of coverage that you can get even just from an announcement on Odd Up. And so, um, you know, we just want to get, want to speak to them, just make sure that them some facts and figures are right, employees, sectors are correct, and so forth. And 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 to ensure that, um, uh, you know, what their view of their company is, is, is what matches us and our sort of formula. And from after that's happened, we, we will spend up to you know typically the research report would take anywhere between two and, and five hours to write but a lot of the metrics are actually built within our algorithm so we're actually monitoring that company for a good two three weeks before we go live with that company so we're looking at you know how are they performing on social media how's their traction how's their uh, analytical score are they getting people on their side are getting people downloading their app a lot of these things to make up the 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 product so that when it goes live um, investors have at least a good four week period of information on that company and mm. we've got a score for a four-week period based on what our, our algorithm is our score changes every every four hours so it's never going to be the same any any given day and so this is one thing that that we want to make sure that there's at least some data before we initiate them or put them live on our system <laughs> right so so once uh, a company is in your system how often does the ratings get updated on a regular basis and also i wanted to ask you once a company is in your system, let's say it goes public, does it drop out at that point? How does that work? Oh yes, yes. So we can, we don't cover public companies. Um, that's one thing mm. that we we you know as you know our regulars, our, our very our very nice and expensive lawyers will tell us. You know, we're not covering public <laughs> companies. We haven't got our um, and this is something we cover. We typically cover companies that with less than fifty shareholders. That's typically the case. Once you get to a company with yeah. thousands of shareholders, it becomes a mess. Um, and it's typically a public company. And so there's a mm. number of companies that have uh, we've covered in the past two years that have gone on to either list on the ASX or go public in Hong Kong or, or do something that's different. Um, and so we actually stop covering them. We keep the legacy information up to the point of before they came public and then, you know, they're not public and we're not covering them anymore. So that's that's typically how we how we look at, I guess, it from, from a public versus private perspective. Gotcha. And as far as updating on, <laughs> here's more jargon, upgrade and downgrade cycles, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> so when do we change out? So I'm going to use dummy languages that my grandparents would understand. Um, so when Thank we you. change our buy, hold, sell expectations. So yes. That can happen on the whim. What I mean by on the whim is that some companies will stay by for a long time. Some companies will stay 
a hold for a long time. It's our it's our data and our research that is looking. We're always looking at companies. So typically our analysts, and this is why I talk about 100 to 150 companies that each analyst covers versus data that's on our platform. So they they're responsible for looking at the those companies pretty much every day. They get feeds every single day, every single hour, understanding what's going on with those companies. Plus they're talking to everyone in those companies anyway. They're reaching out and providing a lot of information. And so when there's a material effect, and that's another investment to, so we're, I'm trying to do some, a material change in, in, in as in <laughs> what they're about to raise money or guess what they're about to be sold. You know, we usually have that information yeah, a couple of days before that it usually goes live. And so we can then, you know, I- implement in our system some changes that potentially will happen. But, you know, our buy, hold, sell is not necessarily on, this is what we think. This is basically on the returns that people are going to get. So when a company is sort of a 50% upgrading valuation for next year, they're a buy. Mm. So a lot of seed companies can be buys very early on. But once they get to a Series A, Series B stage, they stay on a hold for quite some time because there needs to be another material effect uh, for them to change. So you'll see that things change a lot. And so if a seed company goes from, like, say, a $5 million valuation and then they raise another $6, $7 million, um, and so the valuation, let's say, is about $20, $25 million, they, are, they have actually gone from a, a buy to a hold at least initial period and then of course as they build momentum they change but the buy hold sell can change very quickly based on momentum in the company Mm, thanks for keeping it uh, the jargon to a minimal i think you (laughs) and i can uh, probably have a a complete conversation and no one would understand what we're talking about if they're not (laughs) within the the realm of of, yeah we don't want to bore bore your listeners though jay yeah yeah, i appreciate that you're looking out um i want to talk a little bit about ethics and the ethical side of rating so this is a this is an interesting topic because you and I both know, uh, having worked on the sell side, how this uh, works for publicly listed companies. And there are some horror stories, which I'm sure you have mm-hmm. uh, plenty of as well, of analysts putting uh, ratings on corporates and getting a lot of pushback from the corporate because it's not favorable uh, and possibly from investors. So what mechanisms do you have in place? I mean, I granted, when you deal with startups, the, the, the scale is much smaller uh, of, of the, the, the company, so they might not have as many resources mm-hmm. to, to, uh, to use to influence uh, your rating. But A, have you come across any situation where there was some issues with this? And B, how, what mechanisms do you have in place to ensure that there are no issues in the future? Well, maybe I'll go through the basics here. And the basics are is that we don't take any influence from anyone. And people say, well, you know, you've got investors. Guess what? We've got Kima and 500 as investors. And they've got two of the biggest portfolios in the world. And they have both never, ever asked us to influence ratings. So, mm-hmm. you know, well, there was probably two of the reasons why we chose those two investors as well. But, right. you know, one of the things that people need to understand is it's influence is the most stupid thing we could do at OddUp. And what I mean by that is if we say, oh, just he's a friend, he's going to change it, or this is a corporate that's going to try and wine and dine us to try and get us influence. If we say the wrong thing, we're only as good as the last research report that we do. If our research reports are crap, people aren't going to buy our products and we die. And so I'm very much of the, the obvious part is that, you know, doing those things that happen in public markets, that may suit it for people because they're in a situation where, you know, this is a small stock, it may move the needle, but we're in a situation that we affect startups and their potential chance of raising and and growing. I, as, you know, in our own ethics, and this is what our team uh, pride and preach ourselves on, we do never, ever, ever take influence. Why? Is because at the end of the day, it only affects us. 
it doesn't just affect the startup. It affects us as a startup on what people do to trust us. We need to win a lot, a lot of trust so that we become the standard rating system for all the startups. And so if we're going to be influenced by people, oh, goodness me, we would we would fail at the first corner. And so this is the one thing that we're very, very passionate on because it just it doesn't benefit us and it doesn't benefit the startup in the long run either. Having said that, um, you know, we have, I guess, in the past two and a half years, as we've sort of become a much more bigger brand, we have a lot more startups reaching out to us who want, of course, get attention from us and throw themselves at us. And what we right. do for them is give them attention by give them, giving them an article on our page or, you know, making sure that their company data is good, but as in they've given us all their financials that we need to, and things work out in a better way, but we never, ever take influence um, that way. It's all, it's all about, you know, having integrity and standing by it. So as far as the buy, sell, hold ratings go, mm-hmm. would you say that once a company gets downgraded, so to speak, from a hold to a sell, I mean, is that is there a chance of turnaround? I mean, the startup investing, a startup as lifeline is, is sort of at stake at that point. Um, what would you say the company's odds are of turning that around and actually being able to crawl back to a hold and potentially a buy in the future? Uh, I'll use our data that we've got on the companies that we've got to sell. There's been, uh, for companies that have, and, and typically if I look at all the companies, there's typically about 15% buy, about an 8 to 12% sell, and everything else would tend to be a hold. So that's what the makeup of the 100%. For the sell companies, we've had quite a few companies that have been sell and investors have loved them because there's high risk, but there potentially could be a high return. And so they've jumped on them and actually turned them in from a, a sell to a buy. Things can turn around very fast in a startup. So um, typically when we have a sell, we have very, very, very good reason to put as a sell, i.e. we know the company is shutting up shop or we know the company has, uh, you know, filed for bankruptcy. So a sell is typically a very obvious sign. Um, but right. for companies that we've seen in and, and a lot of things people track to employee movement. If a lot of employees are resigning at the same time, you go, okay, there's some problems here. But there's a lot of companies that can be changed around very quickly. For a, for a public company, if you put a sell and it's bad news like that, you know, it could effectively destroy the stock price. But for a startup, there's always an investor out there that goes, okay, this is an opportunity for me. Mm. And so those sells can become buys pretty quickly. So it, it's never a, a sell is sometimes never a bad thing. It just could mean that they're overpriced as well. So that's the other kind coin where you've got companies like, um, uh, let's talk about last year or a year before that when food delivery services were the, were the flavor of the year. And so, you know, there's humongous valuations on these companies. And then, of course, a lot of them, you know, they're not necessarily a in a bad state, but you may get, when we say sell, it could be the best time to exit. So Mm -hmm. let's say you're at Series C or Series D and there's a sell on it. doesn't mean the company's going to die. It just means that actually we think the growth has hit its peak. It's going to be business as usual. So if you can get out now and and sort of cash in, then that's a good thing. So it's typically like it would in the public markets. Selling doesn't necessarily mean the company's going to die. It just means maybe it's hit the peak that they needed to. Oh, that's pretty interesting. Uh, And and, um, how you say that a sell can be... Uh, also an opportunity. Uh, I, th- I find that pretty fascinating, a, a, f- a fascinating way of looking at it as well. So right now, it seems like the large part of the bell curve distribution is within the hold segment. Is there any sub rating or is a hold a hold? A hold is typically where we don't see, uh, and we're lo- looking at valuation increases. Let's look, let's, so for the, I, I guess the audience out there, when we talk about these sort of terms, and when you've got a hold, it means that 
and, and remember, holds can change every day. It could be held by tomorrow based on what some material has come to us. But a hold means that we don't expect their $20 million valuation to be $25 million valuation tomorrow. We expect it probably 20.1, 20.2 tomorrow. And so a hold is typically where we see a company sort of at the stage of, okay, they need to grow to the next stage. So they're staying on a path at this point in time. Things don't happen immediately, like uh, as quick as they can. And that so, and for holds, it's typically like they've just raised money or they're, they're in a situation where they've been sort of, you know, their, their traction or their downloads or their users are pretty much stagnant. So they're not necessarily dead, but they're, uh, they're not necessarily going to grow, but they're going to be at a comfortable space at least for the next two, three months. So hold is, is, is a lot of startups are in that stage, a lot of startups in that stage because, you know, they raise money and then they need to find people to work for them or they need to sort of, you know, sp- spend a lot of time to get to the next stage of growth. So I think hold is actually a very safe sp- space to be because it means mm-hmm. that you're still sort of getting getting your hands dirty until you the next experiment works for you. Right. Now, you also rate investors on your platform. Is mm-hmm. that correct? We certainly do. So this is very we interesting. We don't have a buy hold sell on them yet, but um, probably a lot of a lot of startup founders would like us to. <laughs> I don't think we'll do that yet. <laughs> what are the some some of the metrics that you use to rate a, an investor or or an, analyze an investor? Let's say you know, I like the analogy. Someone told me I like the analogy that you're only as good as the children you have. Mm-hmm. So if you have one star children child and one terrible child, even though you love them all. There's one that really stands out. <laughs> someone told me that. I didn't say that, but someone told me that. But, you know, it's the same thing as an investor with their startups is, you know, they, they, their, their investments are their children. Um, and I go back to my, you know, um, you know, my investor, Carmen, Carmen Chan, who's, you know, probably one of the best and most connected ones in Hong Kong, no question. And, you know, she'll always call her, all I call her startups, her children. And she's got quite a lot of startups. And so, you know, as children, we need to, you know, prove to our mum and dad that we're doing really well. And the same thing for the investors. Investors, we look at their total portfolio, the good, the bad. And so as investor sort of, um, you know, rating is based on the startups. I, how many have sold? How many have failed? How many, what's the traction on each of them? So an investor, a good rating for an investor is very good, particularly because they need to raise money as well from LPs. So there's so many investors out there. LPs who put money in want to put it on the best possible investor they can. And so this is one thing that, you know, uh, an investor needs to be rated based on the, the, the companies that they've got. And so their people where they get money from need to also be, be checked on as well. Right. And so you recently also had a tie up with Reuters. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, can you talk, talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, that was quite exciting, particularly because we actually started talking. We made the announcement last September. Mm-hmm. We started talking to them, oh, goodness me, about nine, ten months beforehand. And we were at a stage, you know, we just sort of finished seed. And then, you know, lo and behold, behold this huge opportunity comes to us. And we're like, my, my language, crap. You know, how do we do this? <laughs> uh, because we were such a small company then. And so, you know, my co-founder and COO, uh, Jackie, she sort of led that and you know, and that's been an amazing experience for us because, you know, Thomson Reuters, you know, they had others to talk to and they spoke to us and they said, look, your data is the, you know, the best we've seen. And we want to actually give that sort of same data to our users on Icon. And so we built that and that was quite a long, lengthy experience. And one of the things I we took from that is that, you know, as a startup, you can move very fast. Working with a corporate takes some time. 
And so that whole experience of, of building that took some while. But once we've launched it, it's been exceptionally successful. And, you know, um, uh, it's been a, a product where Odup is available on Icon. And for us, it's helped us get corporate clients that we that didn't understand the brand of Odup, but do understand the, the brand of Thomson Reuters. And so they're happy to right. buy a plug-in from Thomson Reuters with Odup in it versus buying Odup. And we see that quite a lot with our corporate clients where they're they're saying, you know, I like you, but, you know, I need to go through another cost center. But if I just buy your add-on via Icon, it's an easy sell. And so that's helped us also with sale as well. And that's been a really, really great great thing for us. We, we, we actually really quite enjoy working with Thompson Reuters. Right. So uh, as a corporate or a potential client, how do I subscribe to your service? Is it, is there, what's the revenue model like? Is it a, is there a free, free version, freemium or, or how does that work? Okay. So I'll look at, we've got multiple products that we've got. Um, and so uh, for people who've got iOS, you can download the app and you can actually start getting a lot of data for free if you just download um, uh, the iOS app. The Android will be coming in the next month or so. Um, so Android, we, we, we do love the Android users as well. So we're not saying no to them. So that's going to come soon. Odup.com is free. You can get some basic information for free. And we like giving that because a lot of people who like startups aren't actually ready to invest or they're just not ready to spend money on a, on a, on a, a subscription immediately. They just need to get their toes and feet wet. Um, before they start. And then, of course, you can pay for two things. One has been um, a single report where people will buy information on a company where they'll get want to get the full analysis from. Or two, they um, they will spend $4.99 a month and get access to everything. You know, we're rolling some new... And so as a corporate, though, you can do the same thing, apply at odup.com and subscribe that way. Or two, if you're a Thomson Reuters user and actually want to use that interface, just um, you know, there's a button on Thompson Reuters that hit request, you get an access and, you know, one of the lovely people from Thompson Reuters will reach out and you make that all happen for you. But we've got more products coming our way in particularly on making it accessible. Um, one of the things we believe in Odup is that um, it, Odup is, uh, you know, we're a bit like, I, I like to use the analogy of Coca-Cola, you know, we're producing a product but it tends to be sold in multiple forms, you know, at 7-Eleven or, or McDonald's. And, you know, Odup is actually heading that way where we're providing our data to a lot of people to use on their own product. And that's where our newest, newest product that come out is the API, where people, if they want to potentially build their own sort of database or use it, use their information in their own um, their own system, which is quite quite a lot of our corporate clients, they can actually just buy our data and put it in. And that's what we see a lot with corporate clients particularly who, have their own interface for their own clients and just need that data to help improve their own product. That's very exciting. So now let's talk, speaking of exciting, let's talk about the news of the week. Uh, <laughs> you guys just raised your Series A $6 million round. First of all, congratulations. I know that this is a huge milestone. You know, you of all people who, who whose business is to rate startups know how difficult it is. Uh, you wrote a really good piece. I highly recommend uh, our listeners to go uh, over to Forbes, where James is a contributor. And you wrote a, a really good piece on lessons learned, so to speak, of, of the entire process of your uh, of raising raising that round so you wrote a you wrote a very uh, uh powerful post on forbes please tell us a little bit about some of those lessons that you did learn and uh, and the series a round yeah look you know i'm very pro entrepreneur so you know it's funny that we have odd up which some startups go oh, you know don't rate my startup actually we're a startup as well i'm mm. probably not a small startup anymore but we're still a startup and so you know one of the lessons learned is that people you know 
people look at fundraising like it's it's a hobby or it's something fundraising is a lot of work like a lot of work and it takes a long a lot of time to do it and so one of the things that has been very key was to give those lessons to other people because guess what one of the things that we uh, um, you know one other thing I've learned as an entrepreneur is is as you build success make sure that success passes on to other people so they can learn um, and so I've had that from my mentors and I want to make sure that if I'm a mentor, even by by association from Forbes, let me make sure that that information comes past. But, you know, there's been a lot of challenges, particularly when you grow a company. When you're seed, you've got an idea. Everyone's sort of like, this is a great team, great founders. Let's just put money in and hope for the best. When you're at Series A, you actually already need to be at Series B. So, um, and the environment, particularly at the moment, is much harder for companies to raise. And so if we look, if I was to look at Odd Up, where we, where if we raised in 2015 with what we had, we probably would have raised faster. And the reason for that being was that was more people were more hungry for, for, you know, for investment. And since like, you know, there's been elections in the US, there's been some concerns, I guess, for returns for investors on other startups, it's been much harder to raise. And that's one of the things I wanted to point out. But particularly, you know, when you raise money, you need to also look at who you're raising from. One of the lessons I learned, I guess, potentially as being an investor and watching other startups, though, is who is actually going to be your investor? I, you know, one thing I love about our investors is they're very strategically placed. We said no to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And that sounds may, may sound very egotistical. It's actually not that way. You know, investors are like, you know, relationships. You want to make sure you're with the, your, your friends that you love. And so, you know, raising is is all about the investors who can help connect you right. and make your business go to the next level. And so the, the the process of raising is not just to look at raising money to survive. It's looking about raising money to get to the next stage and making the company not about James Giancotti anymore. It's more about Odup, and Odup needs to be going long after James Giancotti is ever involved in it anymore. And that's really where people need to see Series A at. They have to get their mindset away from, oh, you know, I started a startup, we're going to grow. That's fine when you're two, three, five people. When you're now like at nearly 50 people, you need to go, actually, there could be someone better than me to do it. So let's build a company so that someone even better than me can run it to even be a better company. And that's one of the things that a lot of entrepreneurs get wrong. Lots of them they do. They, They keep on thinking about me. They shouldn't think about me anymore. They should think about the company that they're raising money for. Right. You you wrote, if you are raising to survive, then you're already out of time, which I think is so is it's so so key. And it just hits on the fact that, you know, it's it's so difficult to fundraise and it's an ongoing process and, you know, it just you need to be working on it constantly, thinking about mm-hmm. the future, thinking about growth. And uh, and it makes it even more of a milestone for you. So I'm I'm we're so happy, you know, obviously uh, Audup is is a rising star here in Hong Kong, and and it's one of our homegrown sort of uh, local champions. So we're we're behind you 100%. Obviously, uh, very happy at your uh, to see your success. So let's talk about what you, plans you have in store now that you've raised a a, a very nice round, uh, Series A. You know, obviously keep growing, keep growing. Where, what plans do you have to scale in the future? Uh, look, it's it's quite amazing where we are right now. Um, you know, we. We took a breath for. Uh, let me tell people. People need to understand, I guess, about the 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 whole process of fundraising and who you fundraise with, um, and then how how it relates to growth. So, you know, one of the, you know the biggest investor in our round was Times of India, and so for people who don't know who Times of India are, 
Um, they're a, a just a humongous media company in India. Mm. We wanted to go to India, and we thought, how better to do it with than with someone? So India is going to be certainly in our plans this year. There's no questions, no ifs or buts about that, and there's a lot of work happening there. Um, it, the growth for Odd Up is not to just be the startup rating system. It's to actually be the startup, you know, to be one of the startup plat- ecosystem platforms where people where we build our, our product based on startups, not just about rating startups. It's all about the startups and everything that goes around startups as well. And, you know, one of the things that we're trying to grow on is uh, is particularly um, our distribution. So um, one of the things that we'll be focusing on this year is distributing to multiple channels. So you could see that, you know, there will be, you know, places in India that, you know, pretty big names in India. You see that it's, of course, happening at Forbes. You see that it's happening at Thomson Reuters. That way we're trying to enable more companies to do that. And so that's going to be part of our growth plans this year as well. From a, a geographic perspective, this year is all about Asia. Next year is all about the rest of the world. And mm. so one of the things we want to do right, I guess it's been good to be number one in Asia, but we want to be number one full stop. And so we're going to grow, keep on growing and, and make sure at the stage that by the end of um, 2018, 2019, that you know, there's, it's not just a good homegrown Asia company for Odup. It's a good, you know, Hong Kong could be proud to say that Odup, you know, is a household name around the world. And that's, you know, that's where we really need to go to. So there's, you know, from that, Jay, there's a, a crap load of work to do, <laughs> like a lot. Um, and so, you know, we're in the uh, the flurry of hiring a lot of people. We're in the flurry of sort of, you know, building out, you know, more space um, in different places. You know, we're building bigger offices in, in all the parts that we're in. You know, we're just growing. And so, um, you know, the focus is just to keep on doing what we're doing, but to keep on growing at the pace we are. And we should have some really interesting news to give people, you know, mid-year of, of sort of where we're, where we're headed to. Exciting. So exciting. What does odd up look like in five years from now? Uh, you know, I, <laughs> a lot of, uh, I, I like to ask this question to startup founders um, and it, it's, you know, different people have different answers. You know, it's not a crime to say that you want to be a publicly listed company in five to 10 years time either, uh, because I think that that's what a lot of people strive for. And, and, and if you impact that many people as a publicly listed company, then more power to you. You know, you're helping the, the world be a better place. So what, what does Audup look like in the next five to 10 years? What do you see? Uh, well, like maybe I answer the public company quite, quite simply. <laughs> you know, um, we have investors and if we are not listed or had a significant material event in the next 10 years, there will probably be some sort of concern for them. Um, so, you know, look, if you ask me in 10 years, most likely we'll be listed, but, you know, that's a long way away. The question is where? <laughs> that's yeah. probably the question of where it gets listed rather than, <laughs> than, than if it gets listed, I think we'll have all those metrics to do that. You know, the one thing that I want, and I sort of, sort of mentioned in the previous uh, sort of response is that, you know, a couple of people in Hong Kong, some great successful companies in Hong Kong have said that, you know, we're one of the few companies that can be that household name. Mm-hmm. And so this is probably what we want to do. You know, there's, you know, we love being a champion, but we're one of many champions for Hong Kong. You know, there's great companies like WeLab, um, EasyVan slash Slala Move, right. um, Rana, a lot of great companies coming out of Hong Kong lately. But we want to be that company that just says, you know what, I can't believe that's a, you know, and probably people will paint us with that brush is that's a China company or a Hong Kong China company that, you know, people use in the US. And so um, this is one of the things that we would love to build a brand that is is just known everywhere in the world. Um, We'd like to sort of be, you know, I I guess I think if you ask me in five to 10 years, I think we will be a, a big 
media slash data company. Mm-hmm. What involves, I don't know. There'll be probably things that come from that. Anything's possible. But, you know, one thing I do want to see in five, ten years is up still around and people are still using it. And that's really what it comes down to. Um, I can only really look at the last, next 18 to 24 months. After that, it becomes a... You know, it becomes too far in the, in the vans to sort of think of, you know, where we're going and, you know, what things in the world will impact what we're doing. Right. And speaking of household names, you know, I asked you this the last time we met. Uh, Audup, what, for our listeners, what, what does Audup mean and where did that come from? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, we have had so many questions of uh, why the name? Yeah. You know, and, you know, unfortunately, my surname's not odd up or like, yeah. <laughs> like, like that. So I can't say that. Maybe I have to do that by default. But, you know, originally odd up was going to be, we were actually going to put, uh, when odd up first started, it was actually originally going to be something to do with betting on startups, as in rather than rate them, we were going to actually bet them, like, you know, are the odds in your favor? Are they up? Mm-hmm. And so Audup was this nice five little five letter domain name that, you know, sort of rel- was relatively back to what, you know, startup investing is, is the odds in your favor? Are they up? And so Audup came from that. And then, you know, I remember being in Silicon Valley as we first started, people were like, I love the idea. I hate the name. Love the idea. I hate the name. Whereas in Asia, everyone's like, I love the name. I love the idea. So we're like, <laughs> okay. And so then we just, you know, then someone, you know, someone in Silicon Valley said, you know what, don't, don't listen to us, do what you're really good at. And so now we keep on getting the you know, the name is now the name. And so we probably, we're certainly not going to change it unless, you know, people want to call it, you know, Jankotti or they want to call it Lamb instead. But, yeah. you know, I don't think Jackie or I want our surnames <laughs> used. I think Odup is fine. So, um, you know, that's really where Odup came about. And yeah, what, look, it, to me, it's, it, it's, it's now, I don't actually think of that anymore. That was when we first started. It's now just the name and people are, you know, people, there's so many crazy crappy names for startups that have ended up becoming, you know, household names as as a result. So yeah. if people are happy with five letters and a .com, then we're happy with it as well. Yeah, I'm excited to see, uh, to, to hear it become a household name. So I'm, I'm really rooting for you. James, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure catching up. I just have a final couple questions. Oh. What is one last piece of parting advice that you could give to uh, a startup founder or an aspiring entrepreneur given your you know you have vast experience uh, you know working for someone working for yourself uh, starting a company uh, on you know you're just did a big round what, what's one piece of parting advice you can give to our listeners oh look the one thing I, I, I see in founders um, is that rejection hurts and it shouldn't because one of the things that I found particularly in this game is that people and no matter what you do you know people will say good and bad things about other people will say good and think bad things about your Kickstarter project so mm-hmm. just just remember as a founder that you've got to take the criticism as an opportunity an opportunity to prove people wrong um, and one of the things I say by, uh, about this was I remember when we first started pitching Odd Up, everyone was like, oh, that's a stupid bloody idea. That's a stupid. It's never going to work. And those same people now are asking to invest. Those same people are asking yeah. to, oh, this is great. Um, you know, I was always supporting you in the first place. And as an <laughs> entrepreneur, you want to actually probably get quite upset about that. But that's the pettiness in you. Don't be petty. Always focus on you know what, you've proved them wrong. So what you're doing is right. And when people don't like something or give you com- uh, criticism, use it as your advantage because at least they care about to give you an opinion. Make sure you focus 
on getting attention, getting getting some awareness of what you're doing. And so what a lot of founders don't understand is the power of criticism or rejection from a VC is actually the best thing they can ever have because it makes you stronger. It makes you it makes you more focused on making you more successful. That's right. And it's such a it's such a internal battle. We've all been there where it's, you know, you can get a thousand likes and positive comments on your Facebook post, but the one negative one will just eat away at you for the entire day and ruin your day. And it's it's a challenge and it's a, a mental script that you have to flip in your mind. But if you're able to do that, it'll just help propel you to further success. So, And it was actually you that gave it to me. Now, and it's been a consistent theme. You know, I, I, I guess being a founder, you have to take care of yourself. And I remember speaking to you about this when we did Startup Grind. Mm. And, and, and that's the one thing that sort of came through it because one of the guys actually told me, this week said, you know, you're destined to be a billion dollar company, but you need to stay alive for it. Right. And so, you know, one of the things I want founders to worry about is health. So mental and both physical health. So that's one thing that I now need to focus 100% on because, you know, being a founder, being a successful founder takes a lot out of you. So even if you're healthy, the mental part of the health can actually wear you down just as much. And so mm. both physically and mentally, you need to have the endurance. And so, you know, one of the things as a founder I'm going to give to other people is that, you know, uh, I need, and I've been guilty of this big time, but I need to now take care of myself from a health perspective so I can last the long distance. And I don't say just being physically fit. I also talk about being mentally fit mm. because even if you're fit as a fiddle, you still need to still need to have your head in the right space to make yourself successful. So that's another thing. And, you know, Jay, your book is fantastic. It's, it's actually been an inspiration <laughs> in my life. So if anyone, and if I'm going to sell you now, if everyone's listening. <laughs> this was not planned, by the way. <laughs> so uh, where's the best place people can uh, find you, follow you, connect with you? Oh, goodness me. Um, I, I don't follow me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I like some peace and quiet sometimes, but I mean, you know, you know, in all fairness, um, you know, look, I'm I'm on Twitter, I'm on Forbes, I, I mean, and I use these things sparingly, um, uh, and I'm also, of course, I'm not up, and so you can always reach out to me. But you know, one of the things I always like to do is give back. So, um, and it's not just me. I'm I'm one part of a great team. You know, it's also following my colleagues and following people who could also provide advice. So, um. Um, yeah, look, Forbes is a good start. That's usually where I sort of speak my mind mm-hmm. um, on Twitter um, and sometimes uh, um, also on Facebook Live and so forth. Those are things that I can do and I'm more than happy to help entrepreneurs get to the next level. Awesome. Such a pleasure, James. Always a pleasure. Uh, we are so excited. Uh, congratulations again on your, your Series A and you. you are definitely on the radar. We will be tracking your progress very closely and best of luck uh, for Audup and, and for you in the future. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. All right. Take care. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. I'd love to hear your comments. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer, J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you guys next week.
This podcast is brought to you by Hack Your Fitness, the high achiever's guide to getting ripped in under three hours a week. If you're anything like me, you're probably working a full-time job or jobs and trying to find time to balance family life, social life, and last but not least, fitness. Look, I get it. I'm a full-time investor and entrepreneur myself and father of two. So how am I able to stay fit year-round without spending hours and hours in the gym killing myself on the cardio machine? After struggling for the last 15 years trying every workout and diet under the sun, I finally designed a system that allows me to achieve and maintain single-digit body fat for life in under 3 hours a week. Cardio not required. Head on over to hackyour.fitness and download my free 13-page guide that teaches you the simple science behind efficient fitness and smart nutrition and gives you everything you need to know to finally take control of your life. That's hackyour.fitness.